I suppose I said yes to doing this podcast mainly to break that cliche that all fool fans are boarding men and the judgment I sometimes get of um, getting into a band later in life. There can be a lot of pretense and snobbery of people who become fans of bands later in life and secondhand, especially a band as prolific with such a huge fandom as The Fall. I wasn't even born when this album came out that I'm going to talk about, but it was actually seeing them live for the first time without ever paying attention to their music before, which led me back and back to Hex Induction Hour. What a record and what a wake-up call as a musician hearing this. A very welcome one. And I'm certainly not an expert on this band or this album, but a nice change perhaps for someone with fresher ears and a bit more new to it to give their opinions. I don't know, you tell me. Um, but Hex was the first album by The Four to have the two drummer lineup, and as a Glitter Band fan myself, I had that immediate connection. It's an album full of unusual compositions and the mood shifts throughout where the band sound like they're really following their instincts and it's extremely raw sounding. It kicks off with such a great song, the classical, which sounds like one massive outro to me. Absolutely storming, I love the unison drum rolls and it very much sounds like it was recorded in a room, which it was in a cinema in Hitchin. Then there's songs like Jawbone and Air Rifle, which has a super catchy sing-along little chorus. Um, and after a really angular intro, there's great garage riffs with Dwayne Eddy-style guitars lifting and disappearing at the end, such as on Fortress and Deer Park. There's Hit Priest, which is the most dynamic song, and, and it's improvisation, I believe. But sound certainly sounds like that, and I think they're reflecting Can with that, probably. Also, maybe a nod to Can again after their decision to record in an old cinema. Um, it's super spacious, that song. A lot of the songs are anchored by the repetitive bass, which gives the guitarist room to improvise and go off on one, experiment with going out of time and clashing against the key, which was really influential to a lot of bands. Um, I think Step Sideways is actually my favourite track on the album. It's the top riffs and drum sounding belting and almost like Northern Soul. And then the, the end song and this day, it really reminded me of my drumming style when I first heard this track. It's galloping, random, plenty of cowbell. And like a drum kit is being thrown down the stairs. Fan bloody tastic. Sounds a bit like how can we make this album up to 60 minutes and it goes on maybe a little bit longer than it should do. Although reading Paul Handley's book, it actually went on even longer. So yeah, I don't know. But this album closes one chapter of the group. They believed it was their last album. They would have gone out with an absolute bang, but obviously we we're glad that they continued. It's a really dense sound and a proper experience to listen to this album in full. You go through something listening. You have to be ready to dedicate an hour of your life to it, really. It's certainly not background music. It demands your full attention. It's my favourite bar slates and a huge inspiration. And as Ted Chippington would say, true greatness, this one. Hey, lazy journalists with snide high turnover crack. 
1982's Room to Live has the same lineup as on the previous album. Admittedly, things are about to change, but this classic era full lineup have been entertaining you now for a few albums with only minor changes. Mind you, that's a fairly oversimplistic view of what actually happened. Stories abound of Smith excluding band members from studio sessions, or, as drummer Paul Hanley put it, it was a fucking nightmare. You'd turn up and find Smith had only invited half the band and brought in other musicians without telling anyone. Sadly, Mark Riley is also on his way out and does not appear on all tracks on the album. It was Riley who brought in his friends Steve Hanley and Craig Scanlon, so I can imagine there was a lot of awkwardness around this firing. As ever, Scanlon and Hanley staggered on by keeping their heads down. But in his excellent memoir, The Big Midweek, Hanley does talk about the feeling that Room to Live was a pointlessly rushed album, released within months of Hex Induction Hour. Apparently, they'd initially gone into the studio to record a single, but Smith insisted they keep going, even though they had nothing prepared. Having just produced an album many regarded as their masterpiece, I can understand this impulse to want to keep recording. The sense that you're at the top of your game, and you need to capture as much of the magic as possible before it passes. Nevertheless, it seems safe to say, most of the band did not feel great about the experience. So what did Smith's headlong rush to follow Hex yield? Whilst it lacks Hex's cohesiveness, Marky Smith proves himself still to be at the top of his game. The title alludes to Hitler's policy of Lebensraum that drove the expansionist plans to conquer Europe. Perhaps another instance of that uncomfortable flirtation with Nazi imagery prevalent among bands in the 70s, from Bowie to Joy Division. But the choice of title is as oblique as most of the Falls releases. Marky Cha Cha is a reworking of Lord Haw Haw, the British Nazi propagandist William Joyce, but one can't help but notice that the choice of honorific also alludes to Smith's own name, Marky. The song is reputed to be about the Falklands, but as with most songs by the Fall, this is by no means obvious. Elsewhere, there are songs about the Pope's first visit to the UK in centuries and the experience of recording for the BBC with the solicitor in the studio. Handy's bleak view of how it was made belies the strong performances by whoever was admitted to the sessions on any given day, but it lacks any of the real standout tracks that mark other albums from the same period. So, a lesser album for sure, but still full of peak era goodness. Riley's fall from grace is usually put down to his ambition. He had a vision for the band, and it wasn't Smith's. Ironically, given his reasons for leaving, his exit ushered in precisely the change the band needed in order to become more accessible to a wider audience. <laughs>